Well, it is incredible to be here and be in this space once again. This is fairly new space to us. If you're visiting with us, thanks so much for being our guest today. If this is your first time, we're especially thankful for, well, I know, but that's not true. We're especially thankful for all of you. Just a little word, shifting gears a little, going in a completely different direction, but let's just be reminded this morning what the stakes are for what we believe, what we declare this morning. My name is Ed, and Mercy and Susie are going to read for us in a moment from the Old Testament, a prophecy that we're going to be referring to in, in our comments together later. And then Susie is going to be reading from the New Testament passage that we're kind of going to focus on this morning. The stakes for this are really high. One of the things we're going to talk about this morning is whether or not this story is even believable. And if we're honest, we have to ask that question because it's really bizarre. Once again, a reminder how high the stakes are. A few weeks ago, some of you know, a couple of weeks ago, just a, a wonderful, beautiful young man, incredible personality, filled up a room and worked with us, with our youth for a while here at Gateway. And uh, we didn't know him for long, but we fell in love with him, Kevin Lee. Kevin Lee was working out a couple of weeks ago and died while working out. Uh, he was 36, I think, 37, 38. He was 38. Thanks, choir. He was 38. And this is a reminder to us how vulnerable uh, these bodies are. So what we're reading about this morning, what we're singing about this morning, the stakes could not be higher. Welcome to our second Sunday in Advent. Mercy. Good morning, Gateway. I'm Mercy Wadwa. This is the second Sunday of Advent. I'll be reading from the Old Testament out of Micah chapter 5. It contains a prediction of the birthplace of the Messiah. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. We will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword, he will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. Good morning, Gateway. I'm Susie Spears. I'll be reading from Matthew 1, 16 through 25. Advent is the four Sundays that we take the opportunity to consider the mystery of God becoming man. And this section of scripture begins with the end of Jesus's genealogy on Joseph's side. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. 
and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we bend our hearts and our knees before this incredible accounting of the birth of Jesus. We're filled with wonder at what it communicates. We're filled with joy. The Lord, the, the prospect that this story is true, it unravels and rearranges the universe, reality as we know it. And we stand in awe of that this morning. We ask that you will break open our chests and apply that to our hearts. Father, for those of us who struggle with believing this, I pray that today you'd speak, that you'd speak. Today would be a day of recognition. We bring this morning, Lord, all of our cares and our burdens and our concerns and our heartache uh, we bring our joys, we bring our triumphs and our accomplishments. We bring them to you with all that we know of ourselves, coming before all that we know of you. And we say, all glory to you, all praise to you. We brag about you. Do that through us and in us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to begin before we launch in with prayer today, and let's pray about a couple of things. Let's just focus our attention. Number one, on our, some of you have family. Certainly, we feel a connection, if nothing else, just hearts of mercy to folks in California. They're just going through a terrible series of fires, and this latest seems to be as devastating as any. So let's take that concern to the Lord this morning. And secondly, I think we ought to pray this morning about this is a pretty epic, incredible cultural moment for us right now in the United States, isn't it? And some extremely powerful men who are in very powerful positions are being brought to account because of behavior that is disturbing but is 
rampant in our culture. And it may be that change is happening. And in this case, often culture drifts in the wrong direction. But in this case, this is a very, very good change. So let's just offer this movement and what's stirring in our culture right now to God. And before we even start on comments this morning, let's take those two things to God in prayer. So pray with me if you would. Father, because we believe, we honestly feel like we lift our voices in prayer to you and you hear us, literally, and you respond. So we pray, first of all, for mercy and protection for uh, those families who are near the fires in Southern California. We submit our lives to you. We pray that your will be done, but Lord, we pray that you would protect and that you would guard, that you would even use weather to help what's going on there. And Lord, we also lift our country up to you. She groans under the weight of being led and governed by people like us, people who are often clueless. And Lord, we are also entertained by people who are like us, people who are selfish and are driven by our baser desires, and when we are at our worst, we are pretty bad. Lord, we also recognize that there's glory in us because you created us in your image, and I pray that you, God, would steer this cultural moment consistent with your purposes. And I pray especially that you would help your people, those people who represent you, to speak rightly into this moment. Thank you, God, for your spirit and your grace and your presence that lives in us. We pray that it would leak out. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so often we gather here on Sunday morning and we break open the Bible because we believe that the Bible is God's word, literally, in human words. And I'm going to have a lot to say about that next week. We're going to talk a little bit about the Bible. We need to talk about the story of Christmas. But sometimes we gather to encourage our faith, to just say, yeah, let's go another week. Let's go for it. And today is one of those days. I have prayed that today would be a moment of inspiration for us as we kind of look at the story of Christmas. I was looking at Google Images this week and just looking for Christmas cartoons. And our Christmas cartoons reflect an awful lot about the stories that we tell on Christmas. This first one, Pete, go to that first slide. This first one is Christmas in the Age of Environmental Sensitivity. Yes, but it's a sustainable Christmas tree. The second one is Christmas in the Age of WikiLeaks. Santa, your naughty and nice list has been divulged. The third one is Christmas in an Age of Economic Uncertainty. What I like are the gouges that are taken out of Frosty's body there as he's literally selling his body on the streets. The, the next one, this might be my favorite, this is Christmas in the post-bully era. The others laughed and called me names. But we have a strict no-bully policy, Santa says. But I want you to look at this last one. This is interesting. Oh, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Jesus Christ is coming again. And the tagline at the bottom, the guest speaker last Sunday looked very familiar. 
and so did his message. Obviously, most of these cartoons take advantage of the encyclopedia of stories that surround Christmas. Now, if you grew up with Christmas in your household, especially if you grew up somewhere in the West, chances are you grew up with a long laundry list of stories related to the season, Frosty and, and Rudolph. Part of what you spent your childhood doing is trying to work out how many of these things are true, and if they're true, how did they do that? We end up feeling a little like this penguin in the next slide. So I have wings, but I can't fly. Santa's reindeer do not have wings, but they can fly. Can you explain this to me? If we're not careful, the Jesus story can end up in the same category in our minds as the rest of these Christmas stories. I mean, come on. Angels, suspended stars, virgin birth. I mean, a great story full of meaning, but not literally true. Can you live in the modern world and actually believe this stuff? And if you do, what does it matter? In the Matthew section that Susie read for us this morning, Matthew wants to communicate two critically important things to his readers and to us. So let's get this at the start. So right from the beginning, this is what Matthew is announcing. Number one, he's beginning to make the argument that Jesus' life was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That Jesus was predicted hundreds of years before his life, and that prediction tells us something profound about him. And he was, he was not just any fulfillment, this was a complete fulfillment. As we said last week, Jesus was the point of all of God's activity. That's, that's Matthew's point here. In this fulfillment, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah and the Messiah for the whole world. This term Messiah was a special term for the great hero, the Savior which the Jews were longing for and which many had predicted would come. Here he is, Matthew is saying in Matthew chapter 1, fulfilling all that was predicted about him. The second thing Matthew wants to say is Matthew wanted to make clear the almost incomprehensible mystery that the early apostles only came to recognize by the end of Jesus' life. That is, that Jesus is God with us. Now, obviously, those are two reality-altering truths, if this story is believable. So can the story be reasonably believed? Can we really believe what was written in Matthew 1 and 2 and in the early part of Luke, one of the other biographies that talks in detail about the birth of Jesus? Okay, I want to submit to you this morning, there are at least five great reasons to actually believe this story, actually believe that it actually happened. We'll go over one of the reasons to believe this today, two more next week, two the week after that, because we can only stand so much geekiness in one sitting. By the way, each of these reasons is disputed by skeptics, but I want you to know that an honest examination of the story and the facts around the story will make it not less but more believable. Here's what I suspect. I suspect if you take a deeper dive into this story and actually look at it, the first thing that happens is you go, wait, wait a minute, huh? And it sounds incredible, unbelievable to you. The deeper you dive, 
the more believable it comes. We can't prove it, of course, but when we take a sober, honest look at it, we begin to see that something incredible must have happened here. When you take all of the indicators together, it starts to feel believable. So here are the five reasons. Reason number one, Old Testament prophecy suggested something like the birth of Jesus. And the details of his birth confirm those prophecies. So all of the details that are included in the early part of Matthew and the early part of Luke, Old Testament prophecy suggested something like that, and Jesus' birth confirms that. Secondly, the first witnesses believed it themselves. Now this morning we're only going to talk about that uh, first reason, but we're, at the very end of our discussion we're going to hint at what we're going to say about the second reason as well. The second reason is the first witnesses believed it themselves. They believed all of the details of his birth, including the virgin birth. In discussing this, we're going to have to talk a little bit about the Bible, where it came from, how we know it's reliable, and how we know they are reliable as witnesses. Thirdly, the students of the first followers faithfully carried it into the next century, and that's important. The first generation, the second generation following the first followers of Jesus, they carried this story with them into the second century. Fourth, it's consistent with the rest of Jesus' life. I mean this both in what he became, but also it's consistent with the other supernatural doings in his life. And fifth, secular details of the first century history are confirming of the account. Now, not the virgin birth itself, but there are many historical details in the story which stand up to historical scrutiny. And that's often not the case with ancient Near Eastern texts. Now, none of these reasons to believe prove the circumstances around Jesus' birth. But taken together, they build a picture of surprising believability. So let's start where these discussions often start and, and where they started for the first followers. Let's start with prophecies. And I have to let you know, we're going to be a little geeky this morning. I, I think I warned you of that last week. And I have prayed, honestly, I have prayed that today would not be too boring. Seriously. I know for some of you, not at all, but there are others of you who are, this is kind of like a, a drill to your eyeball. But stay with me, because remember what we said earlier, a lot is at stake here. Not just sentimentality, but can we really believe this, that it actually happened? If we do, the stakes are high. Okay, first reason to believe is that Old Testament prophecy suggested the birth of Jesus. Not only that he would be born, but many of the circumstances of his birth. Here's what I mean. There are quite a few prophecies from the Old Testament concerning the Messiah that are referenced in the New Testament as applying to Jesus, including references about his birth. So, let's be honest, when we look honestly at the substance of those prophecies, we have to lump them into three categories. It's going to be important to remember. Category number one, some of the prophecies are surprises. Meaning, they may not have been taken as predictions of the Messiah by their first readers or by those reading them over subsequent centuries. So the people who were reading these verses before Jesus and these prophecies did not see them as prophecies of the Messiah, much less prophecies of Jesus. So their application to Jesus is surprising. Now when skeptical scholars read these, honestly they say, come on, you people have gone too far in applying these to Jesus, and so did the early biographers, by the way. You're stretching the truth here. But in every one of these cases, 
the uncanny reference from the prophecy that fit exactly with some detail of Jesus' life caused his first followers to believe something more was going on. Eventually, they came to believe that they applied specifically to Jesus. When you read these instances, you can almost hear the first followers as they discover the connection. Wait, what? That thing you just read from Isaiah, that's exactly what happened to the Lord. Wait, you you don't think. And over time, they began to think exactly that. These had been written in anticipation of the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. An example of this kind of prophecy would be Matthew 2.15. But Matthew 2.15, this verse quotes from the prophet Hosea, a prophecy which was spoken almost 800 years before Jesus. So I want to read Matthew chapter 2, verses 13, 14, and 15. If you're visiting with us, you don't know this, but I usually say this on Sundays when we gather together, and this is going to be my only occasion to do it now. So let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's Word. I'm going to read Matthew 2, 13, 14, and 15. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord, the Magi, this is the wise men, had left. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod, and so fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. You may be seated. Okay, remember, this is an example of one of the prophecies that we're calling a surprise In the original context, Hosea, and if you go back and read Hosea, it's a direct quote that Matthew has pulled into his account of Jesus' life. In the original context, it seems pretty clear that the prophet was talking about the people of Israel whom Moses led out of Egypt when he said this. Hosea says this, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. He goes on to explain this in a way that strongly indicates that he had the nation of Israel in mind, not the Messiah. In other words, this doesn't seem like a prediction about the coming Messiah at all, so how could it apply to Jesus? And yet, in Jesus' childhood, he too ends up being called out of Egypt to return to Palestine. Wait, what? That thing you just read from Hosea that happened to Israel, That also happened to Jesus. In the incident of his family being called out of Egypt, I believe Jesus himself and later his followers saw a suggestion of what Isaiah had written about almost 800 years earlier. They saw the details of Jesus' life, and they came to believe that he was the real fulfillment of what Hosea had prophesied and envisioned. Think of it like this. Jesus is being thought of as a symbol of the entirety of God's people, the way we might think of an eagle as a symbol of America, or we might think of President Trump as a symbol of America, and this is a perfectly appropriate way to understand the Messiah, by the way. So some of the prophecy fulfillments are surprises, but they're no less amazing. I'm going to give you a second category. Don't go to sleep yet. There are other prophecies that are obvious predictions. And these are even more amazing. These prophecies were well known over the centuries to be predictions about the Messiah, and people who awaited the Messiah were looking for these prophecies to be fulfilled. An example of this would be everyone knew that Messiah would be a descendant of King David. And this is the main point 
of the genealogy in Matthew. So if you've got that sheet in front of you, dial that open and just look at the first incredibly dull 16 verses of the Gospel of Matthew. The very end of this is what Susie read for us this morning. She said, this is the end of the genealogy of Matthew, which was Joseph's genealogy. And it is. So can you imagine how incredible it would have been for Matthew Let's put ourselves in his seat for a minute to learn of Jesus' genealogy and to learn that he was actually a descendant of David. I imagine the conversation went something like this. You know, this guy is more like the Messiah than anyone I've ever heard of. I mean, if he were an actual descendant of David, I might start to think that he was the real deal. Oh, oh Matthew, didn't you know? He is a descendant of David. Wait, What? Oh, yeah, you should check out Joseph's genealogy. So, of course, Matthew would check it out, and he would include that genealogy in his account of Jesus' life. He is amazed, and he wants us to be as well. If you study the genealogy carefully, by the way, one of the things you'll notice is that often when one person is mentioned, as, and those of you who, who know the old language of this, you will remember that the older versions, if you grew up in church in a as a child and you read this passage in church, the word would have been begat. You'll notice that when one person is mentioned as begetting the next person, the begetter may not be the literal father of the begettee, even though the NIV translates the word father of in the passage that I handed you. They may have been the grandfather or great-grandfather, or in some cases, even further removed. So the word beget should not be taken as a father, literally, but it should be taken as a legal heir. Legal heir. That's the mind-blowing thing for Matthew and for us. Jesus, born in Nowheresville, raised in the backwater of Galilee, this amazing but completely unknown rabbi is actually the legal heir of the throne of David and therefore the fulfiller of this prophecy. Another example of this obvious kind of prophecy is found in Matthew 2, 1 through 6, and you have that on your script as well. Matthew 2, 1 through 6. In this section, Matthew recounts how magi from the east had come to look for Jesus. They know that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem because of the explicit Old Testament prophecy in Micah that Mercy read for us this morning. This was a clear prediction of the Messiah focusing on his birthplace, and all the readers of Micah over the centuries knew it. Even though there's a reference to Assyria there, everyone knew that that was a partial view. The longer view was the view of the great hero that was going to come and save us, the Messiah. The Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. And don't miss this, coincidentally, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Again, some of the prophecies are obvious and clear. Now, now, this isn't a slam dunk case of proof, but it's pretty wild. I mean, think about how crazy it is that Micah was written over 700 years before Jesus was born, and he mentions a specific town. Now, Jesus wasn't the only person born in Bethlehem, of course, but there are a lot of circumstances that coincidentally align in Jesus' life one starts to believe it may be more than coincidence. Finally, there was a third category of prophecy to consider, and that was prophecy that was kind of in the middle. 
Here's what I mean. These are prophecies that hinted at the Messiah, but it, it wasn't plain or obvious to all readers. Readers over the century weren't exactly sure whether there were messianic references in some of these passages or not. And I want you to look at Matthew 1.23 as an example of this. In fact, this is a really, really important example. So if you've missed all these other examples, don't miss this one. Matthew 1.23 quotes from Isaiah 7.14. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Okay, this is a stunning prediction, at least on first reading. Stay with me. Again, this passage was written over 700 years before Jesus. Isaiah was a contemporary of Micah. So how do we know that Matthew doesn't just embellish the story so that it fits with Isaiah's prophecy? Maybe he exaggerates the way, for instance, the Romans exaggerated about their Caesars or the Egyptians exaggerated about their pharaohs. This is what some of the skeptics would say. And this is where the nature of the prophecy comes in. Remember, we said this is the kind of in-the-middle prophecy. Most people did not see a messianic reference here in Isaiah. Let me explain. In the Isaiah passage, the Hebrew word Isaiah used is best translated virgin in English, and it, it could refer to a virgin, but it was also known to be used in reference to the younger wife of an older man. When using this word, the emphasis for the Hebrew speaker seems to have been on the woman's virtue and her youth and beauty, and not necessarily on whether or not she had had actual relations with a man. So do you see the potential ambiguity? Most scholars believe that in the original context, Isaiah had something other than the Messiah in mind. And this is the way many Jews would have read it. Isaiah may have been talking about one of the young women in King Ahaz's harem. King Ahaz was the ruler over Israel during the time of this exact prophecy, and he wasn't a righteous ruler. So Isaiah was longing for something better than King Ahaz. Isaiah may very well have been predicting that one of uh, Ahaz's young wives, one of his virgins, would produce a hero for the nation, the great ruler, maybe even the Messiah. Some go so far as to suggest that he has Abijah in mind. Abijah was one of Ahaz's wife at the time, and she eventually became the mother of Hezekiah, King Hezekiah. Hezekiah proved to be a very righteous king. By the way, Hezekiah is also in the genealogy of Jesus. Early in his reign, there were many in Israel who believed that Hezekiah might be the Messiah. Their argument goes something like this. I mean, come on. Isaiah had no thought about Jesus here. He didn't even have a literal virgin in mind. Matthew has misused this verse to justify his little myth about the virgin birth, and so do you. But the skeptics can't take it both ways, can they? So did the readers not interpret this to mean a literal virgin, or did Matthew make it up to fit the Jesus story and to make Jesus look bigger? It can't be both. Early in his following of Jesus, there's no way Matthew had Isaiah's specific prophecy in mind or any thought of a virgin birth. I'm going to say that again. Make sure you don't miss that. Early in his following of Jesus, there is no way Matthew had Isaiah's specific prophecy in mind or any thought of a virgin birth. He almost certainly didn't think this Isaiah passage was a messianic reference. 
and this is important, scholars on all sides of the events surrounding Jesus say that the virgin birth came as a complete surprise. It was not a Jewish idea. No one expected it. Pause for dramatic effect. Let me say that again. I think you'll get the point. Scholars on all sides, no matter whether they're believing or not, say that the virgin birth came as a complete surprise. No one expected this. It's not a Jewish idea. There was much written about the Messiah over the centuries leading up to Jesus. Very specifics were given, and it never included this crazy detail. Most scholars will say this was not a Jewish idea at all except for the strange reference in Isaiah, a reference that can admittedly be taken not as a literal virgin and probably was taken that way over the centuries. There's no other reference to this. So where did Matthew get this notion of a virgin birth? Well, one explanation is that he got it from the Egyptians. They had this kind of notion concerning their rulers. That's the kind of thing you might see if you were watching over this season, if you watch a Discovery Channel special on the virgin birth. But think about how likely it is for a good Jew to borrow religious ideas from an Egyptian. Not likely at all. Maybe he made it up, and that's certainly possible. But why? What Matthew is writing about and standing for here is righteousness and purity, not to mention Matthew's got a ton of information about Jesus that a lot of people already believe to make his point about who Jesus is. He doesn't need the virgin birth. Well, one explanation for where Matthew got it from is that it happened, and he's recording what happened. One explanation is that Matthew got it from Mary, from the actual witness of the event, the person to whom it happened. Here's the point. Some of the details of Jesus' life are really incredible. In some ways, it's easy to dismiss them, but when you really try to construct, don't miss this, when you try to construct alternate explanations for where they came from, you find that's not so easy. Doubt seems like it's easy because these things are so crazy virgin birth, but when you actually try to construct where this might have come from, if it wasn't based in fact, it's not as easy as it sounds. Step back from each of the details surrounding the birth for a moment and consider the whole body of material. This, I believe, is what the apostles did once they realized Jesus had been raised from the dead. Here's what I think they saw. There are a lot of hints and prophetic suggestions in the Old Testament that have these surprising applications to Jesus' life. Wait, what? That thing you just read from Hosea, that happened to Jesus. And there are outright predictions, clear and plain, that are fulfilled down to the details in his story. Plus, there are these middle ground prophecies. Some of them are a bit vague. Some of them may have had other intentions in the mind of the original author, but all of them come together in the details of the life of Jesus in a way that's remarkable. Look, this is either the all-time runaway champion of coincidences aligning together, or it's something much more, something mind-blowing happened here. That's Matthew's conclusion, and he was a witness. Something crazy happened here, 
and I want you to know about it. That's why Matthew wrote this. Old Testament prophecy suggested, and in some cases outright predicted, something remarkably like the birth of Jesus. And the details of Jesus' birth confirm those prophecies. That's reason number one to believe. So what? So what if this is true? I want to acknowledge honestly before you, as someone who stands up here on a regular basis and communicates on Sunday mornings, there are some Sunday mornings when, you know, we're talking about something and I can't wait to get here and talk about it. And I know it's going to be inspiring. It's knocked me out. Once in a while on Sunday morning, I'll say something like, I got to tell you something that knocked me out this week. It knocks me out, it woke me up, and it just has this amazing application to our lives, and we all leave, and this is my favorite part, we all leave and we go, God, that guy was really good. (laughs) And then other times, we break open passages here because I honestly believe this is God's word. So we want to be faithful to this, not just my thoughts, and we break open passages here where I go, what, and how are we going to talk about that? Weirdly, one of those is the Christmas story. That's why often, those of you who've gone to church over the years, if you think back, you maybe notice that during the Advent season, the man or woman who's doing what I do up here, they don't necessarily talk about the Christmas story. They'll find some other angle on Christmas. Because, let's face it, it's really hard to rescue this story from overfamiliarity. I mean, nobody's ever going to read this story as well as Linus read it. And it's hard to rescue, here, this is important, it's hard to rescue this story from the heap pile of sentimentality in our lives. It even snowed yesterday. So we're all Christmassy now. Part of us is saying, I can't believe it's already December. Can you believe it's Christmas? And the other part of us is saying, yes, Christmas. Give me some spiced tea and sit by a fire. Honey, we don't have a fireplace. We'll knock out that wall because it's Christmas. And reindeers and Frosty the Snowman and Jesus. And it all gets lumped in together. It loses its power to transform in sentimentality. But man alive, if this story is true, what? Wait, what? Jesus is not looking for sentimentality. He's looking for surrender. So if this story is true, It means that 2,000 years ago, a young woman who had never had sexual relations with a man, sorry teenagers, Diane's mother used to always say, relations. Well, this is a young woman who had never had sex with a man. She gave birth to a human baby, a son, in violation of everything we know about human biology in contradiction to all known cause and effect relationships. An event that has no natural explanation, a remarkable, utterly unique event, a miracle happened. This birth was first explained to her by an angel, a supernatural being, not any part of our common experience. It was explained to her husband-to-be through an angelic appearance in a dream, a very specific dream, which he was convinced came from God himself. They named the baby Jesus, and we worship him still today. We are not gathered here because we're admirers. 
We're gathered here because we're worshipers. We don't consult him as an example for most of our behavior. We submit our lives to him in full, all of our thoughts and actions. We don't try to be more like him. We fall down and surrender before his awesomeness, and we pray for his intervention on our behalf. We don't appreciate his influence on history, but we beg for his help because we need a savior. I mean, if we even begin to believe the story, the only real response is, wait, what? Tell me more. And that's exactly what Matthew wanted. He wants us to know that Jesus' life was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and not just any fulfillment, it was the complete fulfillment. Jesus was the point of all of God's activity. He was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, the great hero and savior of all of God's people. And more, he was the great hero and savior of the whole world, including us. And Matthew wanted to make clear the profound mystery, the profound mystery. Paul calls it that over and over. The profound mystery, the unexpected truth that their Messiah was actually God with us. The fullness of God squeezed into human skin. Let's pray. So Lord, we don't come this morning as admirers. We come as worshipers. We don't come offering up sentimentality. We come surrendering. We don't come trying to be more like you. We come giving you our lives and asking you to intervene on our behalf because we need help, we need a Savior, and he has come. I pray, Lord, that you would energize our hearts. Wake us up from busyness and laziness and stupor and call us into a a new level of awe. And do it this year, Lord. Father, I want to pray in particular this morning for someone who needs a special touch of encouragement, a boost of faith. They're facing something big. I pray, Lord Jesus, we recognize that you didn't stay a baby, but you grew up, did incredible things, and you became a conquering king, able to conquer all of our problems. I also pray this morning, Lord, for those here who have never really made a connection with you. I pray that you will rescue our hearts from religion and you'll call us to your person. Lord, hear us today as we praise you and honor you. As we give you glory, all glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. I'm just going to sing a verse and a chorus of all glory to be. So you guys stand with us. Pete, could you bring uh, verse 3 up? His will be done. His will be done. His
Unspeakable joy. Joy, unspeakable joy, an overflowing well, no tongue can Peace. 